Good morning, Christ Central Church. Uh, as Aaron said, my name is Timothy, one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Really glad that you decided to join us this morning. I realize you may not have really wanted to tune in today uh, because this virtual worship thing is kind of getting old. Amen. It is for me and for my family as well. And yet I want to encourage you, church. I want to celebrate your commitment to continue gathering on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, and gathering with the people of God. Uh, church, we need this. You need this. I need this. And I realize it isn't even close to the same as being together in person, but it's what we've got in this moment. So hang in there. As the author of Hebrews says, let us not forsake the gathering together, even if that gathering happens to take place virtually. But let us encourage one another all the more. This morning, we're going to be starting a new sermon series entitled The Fruit of the Spirit. We're going to be walking through the nine fruit that Paul talk about, talks about in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And our plan is over the next nine weeks to look at each of these fruit one at a time. And since Paul doesn't unpack them individually in Galatians 5, we're going to be looking at other passages in Scripture each week that shed light and give color to each of the fruit. Now, before we dive into our first fruit, I want to begin by giving you a very brief overview of what exactly the fruit of the Spirit are. The fruit of the Spirit are the character traits of God and are planted by Him in his people, in us. The character traits of God planted by him in us. Now, what does that mean? Well, as a parent, I've learned the hard way that children are like sponges. They soak up whatever we put out. My children, for better or for worse, are becoming more and more like me each day. To be a Christian is to be adopted by God to become his son or daughter. And as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 3, as adopted children of God, we are being made like him. As the text states, we are being transformed by him into his own likeness. This is what Paul is getting at when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are, are really the specific ways in which we are being transformed from self into God's image. The, the fruit of the Spirit are how we, God's children, begin to resemble our Heavenly Father. But why now, you might ask? Why study the fruit of the Spirit in, in this moment? Well, as Daniel mentioned last week, we truly believe that God is at work in and through these trying times. That God is doing a deep work of renewal, not only in our city, but also in each and every one of us. And therefore, by studying the fruit of the Spirit, we get a better picture of what that renewal that God is doing in us looks like. We understand more fully what it is that God is graciously planting and growing 
in his children. So let's dive in. The first fruit that we'll be looking at in this series is love. And I would be remiss in this moment as I prepare to preach a sermon on love if I didn't first acknowledge Connell. Because I love that man and I miss him dearly. And so I, with a heavy heart, preach this sermon on the fruit of the spirit of love. I want to invite you to turn to 1 John 4, 7 through 12. The magnum, the magnum opus on love, in my opinion. And it is our custom here at Christ Central to stand. So I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would use me, your servant, to bring your truth to us, your people. Would you give us eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This past week, my wife and I were watching a really top-notch television series. It's called Dateline. Maybe you've heard of it. And this particular episode that we were watching chronicled the, shall we say, colorful lives of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. As it turns out, Lori and Chad, over a period of time, discovered that they were madly in love with each other, that they were meant for each other, to use their own words, which is all well and good, except for the fact that Lori and Chad were, at the time, both married to different people. Not only that, but Lori had two children, two children that Chad wasn't at all interested in having anything to do with. However... This love that Lori and Chad had for each other was so powerful that it simply could not be denied. And therefore, Lori and Chad did what any of us would have done in this situation. They had their respective spouses and Lori's two children killed. And as a result, love won. And Lori and Chad got to live out and live into this love that they had for one another that it so gripped their hearts. What a beautiful love story, right? 
Now, obviously, I say that tongue-in-cheek. There's nothing beautiful at all about this story, and I think we can all agree that this is not love. And yet, if we look closely, it's not hard to see how in this cultural moment, a story like this was birthed. You see, contrary to how relationships used to work, where romantic love was but one piece of the puzzle, in today's world, romantic love is viewed as the ultimate and oftentimes only rationale for a relationship. It's viewed as some sort of all-powerful force that, that we are require, required to submit to in order to be true to self. David Zoll describes this cultural shift in his book, Seculosity, when he says, For most of human history, people paired off for pragmatic and economic reasons, for land, peace, security, offspring, survival. It's not that love was never a consideration, just that it was one of many and rarely the most important. Experts refer to this model as a marriage of reason. Think Game of Thrones. As a result of factors too varied to enumerate here, that model was supplemented and eventually replaced by a new one, the so-called marriage of instinct, in which attraction and desire drive us to the altar. We now privilege sentiment over strategy, instinct over prudence. Think The Bachelor. Now, although I doubt that any of us are in danger of following our instincts to the same degree as Lori and Chad did, I do think we all need to recognize how much we are being shaped by this romance narrative that is all around us, that we are breathing in even through our COVID masks. And as a result, we all have a culturally charged definition of love. And the reason this matters is because not surprisingly, our culturally charged definition is vastly different from the definition of love that God gives us in his word. And so as we begin this journey into the fruit of the spirit and we think about the love of God that he is planting and growing in us because of how indoctrinated we have been by the cultural milieu, our task today is to replace our own definition of love with God's. And the reason we're going to do this is so that we can in turn grow in his love and not this instinctual, attraction-driven love of the day. And 1 John chapter 4 is exactly what we need. It's a beautiful picture of the love of God. I've got three points this morning that I want to bring before you. First, love is sacrificial. Second, love is gracious. And three, love is caught not taught. The first thing to note in our text is that the author, John, one of Jesus' disciples, is an excellent teacher. Because instead of offering us a theoretical definition of love for us to, to ponder, he knows that to explain something as weighty as love, we actually need to witness it rather than simply hear about it. Love is something that is better shown than told. Look again at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
John is saying that in order to understand what love is, you need to observe this picture of love that was manifested, that was put on display for all humanity. And that picture of love is what we call the incarnation, the act of Jesus, the Son of God, being sent down into the world. Verse 9, so that we might live through him. But what does this act reveal to us about love? So often when we look at the incarnation, we look at it through the lens of the Son, of Jesus. But here John is drawing our attention to the Father. And what John wants us to see is that this sending by the Father was extremely costly. Now, in order to understand how costly it was, we need to first understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. I want you to think about this. My oldest child is but eight years old, and yet in those eight short years, my love for her has grown to immeasurable heights. In John chapter 17, John's gospel, we learn that the Father and the Son have been in relationship with one another since before the foundation of the world. The Father and Son have been in eternal loving union with one another. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Prior to the incarnation, prior to Christ coming down, there had never been a time when God the Father and God the Son were apart. Never been a time when they weren't delighting in each other's company. Are you beginning to see how incredibly costly it was for the father to send his son away? To send him away to be mocked and mutilated and murdered. And yet what John wants us to see here is that the costly nature of this act of love is not an exception to the rule but rather that love in its essence is always sacrificial. You see, so often we refer to things as loving that are, that are really more commercial than they are loving in a biblical sense. For example, when I am kind to the used car salesman so that he or she gives me a good deal, I'm not really being loving, am I? Or when I do something nice for someone in order to be seen by others so that People will like me and, and think I'm great. That's not loving either. We do this sort of bartering all the time in relationships, don't we? I'll scratch your back as long as you scratch mine. But what John is revealing is that that's not love. Because ultimately it's all about me and my own personal gain. But, but look again at God sending his son. What did God have to gain from this? And the answer is absolutely nothing. He had no angle, no dog in the fight. It was all loss for him and all gain for us. Now, not only do we see this sort of self-sacrificial love in the Father, but just a few verses earlier in 1 John, we're reminded that this same sort of sacrificial love is revealed to us in the Son also. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. Church, we might be tempted at times to look at the crucifixion of Christ as the 
ultimate example of a broken criminal justice system. And yet what 1 John 3, 3 reveals is that it is nothing of the sort. Because Jesus' life was not actually taken from him, but rather what the scriptures say is that he willingly laid it down. What greater sacrifice is there than this? To lay down that which is most valuable of all, one's very life for the sake of another. Both the Father and the Son show us that true love, biblical love, is always costly. It's always sacrificial which is so profoundly contrary to the instinctual, desire-driven love of today that is all about my own satisfaction versus the satisfaction of another. But how do we grow in this kind of biblical love? And although I doubt any of us will ever be called upon to sacrifice a child or even offer up our own life for the sake of another, no doubt we can still embody this sort of sacrificial love in numerous ways. I constantly marvel at how often I bump into this kind of love here at Christ Central. From people who generously and sacrificially give up their finances, often even anonymously, to people who used to arrive hours early on Sunday morning to set up or stay hours after the service to help clean up, to people who give up Saturday after Saturday in order to help fix up someone's home, or people who give up their Mondays to shop for, sort, and deliver food to help fill some empty bellies, from people who volunteer at local nonprofits or engage in local government or who serve our public school systems, all of you, by doing these things are seeking the good of others at great cost to yourselves. That's sacrifice. And according to God, this is love. Bruce Waltke, a retired seminary professor from the school that both Daniel and I attended, has a pretty poignant definition of righteousness and wickedness from the book of Proverbs. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. In the light of our text, and, and I don't think Dr. Walkie would object, I think we can substitute the word love in here for the righteous. We could certainly say the loving are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the unloving are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Church, are we embodying this fruit? Are we willing to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage the community? This brings us to our second point. As we read on in our text, we learn that love in a biblical sense, is not merely sacrificial. It is also gracious. Look with me again at verse 10. It says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John wants to make sure that we recognize that there's no bartering going on here between us and God. God is not merely loving us back. In fact, the opposite is true. 
One commentator says, we will never fully grasp how great God's love really is until we fully grasp who the beneficiaries of his love truly are. So who are the beneficiaries of God's love according to this text? And clearly the answer is us, but, but what does the text reveal about who we are? The answer is we are undeserving sinners. We are, verse 10, those who have chosen not to love God and therefore are in sin, deserving not God's love, but his wrath. And yet the text says God sent his son anyway. He loved us still. I love how Charles Spurgeon makes this plain in this quote. He says, on the cross, Jesus Christ completely embodying perfect love, looked down at the people he was dying for, completely embodying the opposite, and he stayed. Or as Paul says it in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, here we see the even greater complexity and beauty of biblical love. Not only is it sacrificial, but also it is quite often directed at those who don't deserve it. One of the most beautiful pictures of this kind of love is the story of Elizabeth Elliot. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, Elizabeth's husband, Jim, was one of five missionaries that was killed by the Warani, Warani people of Ecuador during their attempts to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to these people. But the unbelievable piece of this story is that after Jim's death, Elizabeth went back to the Wolrani people, the very people who had murdered her husband, who certainly deserved her scorn, and she continued to show them love and offer them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord willing, none of us will ever be required like Elizabeth Elliot to move towards someone in love who has murdered our spouse. However, all of us are wronged by people all the time, every day. And to embody this gracious love is to refuse to make those people who have hurt us pay. It is to not return evil for evil, not give them what they deserve. And it's to take comfort in the fact that vengeance belongs to the Lord, that he will ultimately deal with them for their wrong. But that our job is to mirror what Christ has done to us, to extend grace instead of vengeance to those who have done us wrong. Now, I would be remiss here if I didn't mention that gracious love does not continue to sit under abuse. It's never loving to allow someone to continue to mistreat you in that way. But rather, John is speaking to the posture that we are to have to those around us as we experience the day in and day out hurts that are simply unavoidable in this life. See, love is gracious. It doesn't forgive seven times, but 70 times seven. This brings us to our third and final point. Love is caught and not taught. We've seen thus far that biblical love is both sacrificial and gracious, but the question still remains, how do we get this kind of love in us? 
or to use the language of Galatians 5, how do we bear this sort of fruit? Look with me now at verse 12. John says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What John is saying here is that the strength to love in this way comes through abiding. But what does it mean to abide? Jesus answers this question for us with a metaphor. He says, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The metaphor is, is rather simple. Imagine a grapevine sprawling across a trellis. And at any point, if one of the branches breaks off the vine, it's just a matter of time before that branch dies. And it shrivels, the fruit shrivels up and rots. Because the branch is utterly and completely dependent upon the vine, dependent for life, for nourishment, and most pertinent to this sermon series, for fruit. So you see, to abide in Christ is to live utterly dependent upon Jesus for life, for nourishment, for fruit. It's to cling to him with all that we have. As Frederick Godot states, to abide in me expresses the continual act by which the Christian sets aside everything which he might derive from his own wisdom, strength, merit, to draw all from Christ. Church, the good news for you and for me is that when we do that, God promises that we will bear fruit. We will love like God loves this is why we say that love is caught and not taught, because we cannot simply be told to be self-sacrificial, to be gracious, because we know from experience how countercultural, how otherworldly these qualities are. They are impossible to simply, simply muster up in ourselves, but they can be caught what John is saying in a somewhat roundabout way is that every time you see this kind of love in your own life, you can rest assured that this love is a result of God at work in you. Think again about, about the vine and the branches. The, the branch receives all its nutrients from the vine. And it's those life-giving nutrients that push out the fruit. That is what God has promised to do and is doing in all his children. As we abide in him, we experience his grace and his sacrificial love towards us. We taste and we see that he is good. And as he fills us with his love, his love in turn bursts out of us and it bears fruit. There's one final thing that the text reveals that I... I don't want us to miss. The text says, if we bear this fruit, if we love one another, something absolutely incredible happens. Look at verse 12. John says, kind of out of nowhere, no one has ever seen God. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, look at the rest of the verse. It says, if we love one another, God abides in us. 
Now, we would assume here that John would say, if we love one another, then the love of God abides in us. But that's not what he says. He says, if we love one another, then God himself abides, resides, remains in us. Do you see what he's getting at? One of the greatest hindrances to belief in God is that we can't see him. He's invisible. However, what John is saying here is that when we, God's children, love one another, God himself is present in us. And therefore, in our love, we make the invisible God visible. We reveal him to those who long to see. A seminary professor of mine, Dr. Steve Brown, once told a story of what this looks like in real life, how love enables the unseen God to be seen. Steve shared how he and his family developed a pattern of, of welcoming teenagers who were struggling, who were going through hard times into their home. Kids that had been abandoned or abused by their parents would come live with the Browns for a season. And I have to imagine that this was very costly for the Brown family. It would have been more comfortable, much easier not to bring these kids into their home. And on top of that, I imagine these kids were not always grateful for this love that was being showed to them. And in light of this ungratefulness, the Brown family could have deemed these kids undeserving of their love. But they didn't. The Brown family chose to love these kids graciously and sacrificially. And Steve shared with us about one time when one of these kids joined the family for a beach vacation. And Steve said the vacation was going great. Everyone was getting along and playing together and having a blast. And towards the end of the day, this young girl asked if she could go for a walk with Steve. As they strolled down the beach, Steve looked down at this young girl and, and he saw tears streaming down her face. He stopped and he put his arm around her and asked her, you know, what's wrong? You okay? And this young girl looked up at Steve and through tear-filled eyes, she said these words. She said, I wish I had a family like yours and I wish I had a dad like you. Christ Central, the, the love of God looks nothing like the romantic love that is espoused today. It is gracious and self-sacrificial. It seeks the good of the other at great cost to oneself. And this is the kind of love that our God is showering on us each and every day. And church, the charge of this text is to abide in that love, to remain in that love, to cling to that love, to simply be the beneficiary of God's gracious and sacrificial love towards you. And the good news is, as you abide in his love, you can rejoice and give thanks over the renewal that God is doing in your life as he plants and grows his love in you. And the promise of our text is that as that love grows in us and as we in turn love one another, the world will marvel and they will say, I wish I had a family like yours and I wish I had a dad like him. 
Church, because of our love, they will see God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love poured out on us most beautifully and powerfully and potently seen in the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to see, taste, enjoy, drink in your gracious and self-sacrificial love. And God, would you grow, plant, nourish that love in us? And would that love flow out of us onto one another? Father, I pray that as that happens, that our city would marvel at this love and they would long to be in relationship with you and with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.